You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Welcome to episode number 128 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. When we left off last time, it was January 1862, and Abraham Lincoln was in Quartermaster General Montgomery Miggs' office, and the president was downcast over the dismal state of the Union war effort. Lincoln admitted to Miggs that the bottom seemed to be out of the tub, and he wasn't sure what to do about it. The sympathetic Miggs listened to Lincoln's lament and then suggested that since the general-in-chief was sick with typhoid fever and thus sidelined, perhaps the president might consult with some of McClellan's top commanders and get their recommendations as to what they thought ought to be done with the army. Lincoln immediately seized upon this idea, and I do mean immediately, since he called a meeting at the White House at 8 o'clock that very evening with Generals Irvin McDowell and William B. Franklin. Despite the taint of defeat stemming from Bull Run, McDowell was still with the Army of the Potomac. He was, in fact, the senior division commander. Franklin commanded one of the Army's other divisions and was one of McClellan's personal friends and protégés. Lincoln also called several cabinet members to that fateful January 10th emergency strategy session. The president told the two generals that he was, quote, greatly disturbed at the state of affairs, end quote, and since McClellan was indisposed, he needed to speak with someone. He told them he would like their opinion on how to commence operations with the Army of the Potomac, how to commence operations sooner rather than later. According to McDowell's notes, the president said that, quote, if General McClellan did not want to use the Army, he would like to borrow it, provided he could see how it could be made to do something. End quote. After some discussion, in which both generals confessed ignorance of the Army's actual condition and McClellan's plans, Lincoln said he wished them to consult with one another, get more information, and meet with him again the following evening. Even before McClellan fell ill, Abraham Lincoln had hoped to prod the General-in-Chief into some kind of action, and so back on December 1st, the President had drafted a proposal for half of the Army of the Potomac to make a feint towards Centerville to hold the rebels in place while the other half moved in two columns south along the Potomac, one column by road and the other by water, with the intention of turning the Confederate right flank. The flanking columns would push into the enemy's rear to destroy the railroad supplying the rebel army and trap that army between the converging Union forces. 
This proposal reflected the crash course and strategy that Lincoln had recently begun. It was also precisely the move that Confederate Commander Joe Johnston most feared. Just a week earlier, Johnston had informed Richmond that he was anxious over the possibility the Federals would use the Potomac to turn his right. Remember, though, that Little Mac was convinced the Confederate Army in Northern Virginia had greatly superior numbers, so he told Lincoln that Johnston would simply use those superior numbers to detach a portion of his army to defeat the Union flanking force. Besides that, McClellan told Lincoln, quote, I have now my mind actively turned toward another plan of campaign that I do not think at all anticipated by the enemy, nor by many of our own people, end quote. But that was all McClellan deigned to tell the president. The general-in-chief chose not to share what he had in mind as far as this brilliant other plan of campaign. After the disaster at Ball's Bluff, McClellan, feeling betrayed by events and under increasing political pressure to act, had retreated even further into the less appealing aspects of his character, becoming ever more overwhelmed, more distrustful, more paranoid, more secretive, and uncommunicative. And then, shortly before Christmas, McClellan fell ill with typhoid fever, leaving Lincoln still despairing of how the Army of the Potomac, as the president put it, could be made to do something. On January 11th, when McDowell and Franklin met with the president again, they had come up with two plans. McDowell proposed a short-range flanking movement similar to Lincoln's earlier proposal, while Franklin sketched out a deeper flanking move, using transports to take the army out to Chesapeake Bay, where it would be landed and advance against Richmond from the east. McClellan had actually been thinking about just such a move for some time, and his friend Franklin was certainly aware of this, while McDowell and Lincoln obviously were not. At any rate, Lincoln told the two men to consult with Quartermaster General Meigs concerning the logistics of transporting the army by water and to meet at the White House again the next afternoon. McDowell and Franklin met with Meigs the next morning, Sunday, January 12th. Meigs argued against moving the army by water to the Chesapeake Bay and opening up a new front east of Richmond. He saw neither the need for nor the advantage in such a move and instead so that the army should operate against the rebels from its present base. After reaching agreement on this, they all met with Lincoln that afternoon. McClellan, however, had gotten wind that something was up, and fearing of what might be going on in his absence, he mustered up enough strength to be driven to the White House on Sunday. Little Mac later said, quote, My unexpected appearance caused very much the effect of a shell in a powder magazine. It was clear from the manner of those I met there that there was something of which they were ashamed, end quote. Well, that's undoubtedly how McClellan chose to perceive the reaction to his appearance. But at any rate, he once again assured the president that he had a plan in mind for how to employ the army. And at that, Lincoln invited him to come back the following day for a meeting with the members of the cabinet, Franklin, McDowell, and Miggs. And so at 11 o'clock in the morning the next day, Monday, January 13th, McClellan was there, but he was a sullen, angry presence. When Franklin and McDowell presented their report and recommendation, McDowell referred apologetically to the awkward position they were in now that McClellan had risen from his sickbed. Little Mac simply replied coldly, 
You are entitled to any opinion you please. And then he said no more. When Miggs, in an aside with the surly general-in-chief, prompted McClellan to speak up with regard to a move towards Centerville, McClellan snapped that he couldn't move on the rebels with the force they had there, which he numbered at 175,000. Miggs was taken aback at this estimation, but still prompted McClellan to speak up, since the president expected to know something of how little Mac planned to move against the enemy. But McClellan replied that he would say nothing of his plans, since if he shared them there, Lincoln would immediately leak them to the newspapers. When Lincoln asked generally what and when anything could be done, McClellan still wouldn't open up. So Secretary of the Treasury Chase finally asked the General-in-Chief a direct question. What did he intend doing with the Army of the Potomac, and when did he intend to do it? After a long pause, McClellan said he was very unwilling to divulge his plans in such a setting, since he believed that when it came to military matters, the fewer people who knew of a plan, the better, and that he would tell them only if ordered to do so. Not content with that piece of insolence, Little Mac then said, in effect, that no general commanding an army would be willing to submit his plans to such an assembly, since some were incompetent to form an opinion on them and others couldn't keep a secret. Lincoln didn't order McClellan to divulge his plans, but he did ask where the general had a time fixed in his own mind for when a movement against the enemy could be commenced. McClellan said he did, but reiterated his unwillingness to say more. The president then adjourned the meeting. McClellan's behavior at that meeting is really quite remarkable, to say the least, but Lincoln, despite growing reservations, still had enough confidence in Little Mac that, now that he had risen from his sickbed, the president was prepared to allow the general to do something with his army. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. 
It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. In his book, Tried by War, Abraham Lincoln as Commander-in-Chief, James McPherson writes, quote, McClellan's statement that he feared a leak was a colossal act of hypocrisy. The very next day, he had a long interview with the reporter for the New York Herald, the country's largest newspaper. The Herald had influence in Democratic circles, and McClellan wanted to cultivate that influence to offset growing Republican criticisms of his inaction. During that three-hour interview with the reporter for the Herald, McClellan not only shared the plans he had refused to divulge the day before at the White House, but he also revealed the most current reports and plans from the other Union armies, which were operating from the war's western theater to the North Carolina coast. In Tried by War, McPherson notes that, quote, Lincoln knew none of this, and during the next few days, the launching of the Burnside Expedition and George Thomas's advance toward East Tennessee put the president in a better mood. On January 18th, he told his friend, Orville Browning, that he had great confidence in McClellan. While McClellan was maneuvering behind the scenes against the Republicans, in mid-January, Lincoln unexpectedly seemed to help Little Mac's cause when he replaced Simon Cameron with Edwin Stanton as Secretary of War. Although the move had been building for quite a while, since Cameron had proven to be an inept administrator, still the president's choice of Stanton was surprising. Stanton was a Democrat, a confidant of McClellan, and he had made no secret of his contempt for the Lincoln administration. In fact, it was from Stanton that McClellan had picked up his mocking description of Lincoln as the original guerrilla. But Edwin Stanton was also an incredibly competent and able man, and there was no question of his unselfish and utter devotion to the Union. Lincoln admired Stanton's ability, and on January 13th, the very day of that conference with McClellan, Lincoln named Stanton as his new Secretary of War. The President said, quote, I have made up my mind to sit down on all my pride, it may be a portion of my self-respect, and appoint him to the place. End quote. And Lincoln's choice proved to be an inspired one. Stanton brought efficiency and integrity to the business of war contracts, and the president and his new secretary of war developed an unexpectedly warm relationship based on mutual respect. McClellan was initially delighted with Stanton's appointment, which the general-in-chief described to a fellow Democrat as, quote, a most unexpected piece of good fortune, end quote. But despite his friendship with McClellan, Stanton proved to have a radical's mindset about the war. He wanted the Union Army to fight, to advance immediately against the enemy, and to destroy the hated slave power. Within a month of joining Lincoln's cabinet, Stanton had thrown in with the radicals, sharing their impatience, intolerance, and frustration with McClellan's continued inaction. Abraham Lincoln, with this new hard-charging, no-nonsense Secretary of War, and still looking to prod Little Mac into some kind of movement, issued two war orders at the end of January designed to force McClellan, as well as Halleck and Buell out west, into action. 
On January 27th, Lincoln issued General War Order No. 1, in which he called for Union land and naval forces to move against the rebels on or before February 22nd, Washington's birthday. Four days later, the president issued Special War Order No. 1, which specifically ordered the Army of the Potomac to launch an operation to seize and occupy a point on the railroad behind the Confederate Army at Centerville and Manassas, thus severing the enemy's line of communication. This was essentially the short-range flanking movement that Lincoln had first proposed in December. In Tried by War, James McPherson points out that Lincoln didn't necessarily intend the February 22nd date to be taken literally, but that the president wanted the major Union armies to advance more or less simultaneously and in that way overwhelm the Confederate defenses. Lincoln's strategy of coordinated offensives grew out of his cram course and strategy, and, to his credit, the president grasped sooner than many of his generals the concept of using the Union's advantage in numbers to attack the rebels at a number of different points at the same time, so that the Confederates, overmatched, would be stretched to the breaking point in attempting to meet these thrusts with their limited resources of manpower. If Buell, Halleck, or McClellan acknowledged this good advice, there's no record of it. In fact, in response to Special Order No. 1, the order directed specifically at the Army of the Potomac, McClellan asked for permission, quote, to submit in writing my objections to the plans and my reasons for preferring my own, end quote. Since the president had been trying for several months to get Little Mac to disclose his plans for the army, he granted McClellan's request, and on February 3rd, the general-in-chief submitted a long memorandum explaining to Lincoln, for the first time, his proposal for a massive, deep flanking movement to pry the enemy out of his Centerville position. As Franklin had hinted at several weeks earlier, McClellan proposed to take the army down the Potomac, out into the Chesapeake, then up the Rappahannock River to Urbana, some 120 miles by water from Washington. From there, he would have opened up a new front from which he would move upon Richmond, 50 miles away. This maneuver, McClellan said, would force the Confederates to evacuate their Centerville fortifications and retreat south to protect the capital, which Little Mac predicted he might just reach before Joe Johnston. Lincoln, however, wasn't convinced by McClellan's reasoning. The president's orders had been aimed at engaging the enemy army and destroying it, while McClellan's plan was aimed at capturing Richmond. Lincoln wrote to McClellan, quote, You and I have distinct and different plans for a movement of the Army of the Potomac. Yours down the Chesapeake, up the Rappahannock to Urbana, and across land to the terminus of the railroad on the York River. Mine to move directly to a point on the railroad southwest of Manassas. End quote. Lincoln then asked McClellan to justify his plan. Lincoln posed a series of hard questions to Little Mac. The president asked, First, does not your plan involve a greatly larger expenditure of time and money than mine? Second, wherein is a victory more certain by your plan than mine? Third, wherein is a victory more valuable by your plan than mine? Fourth, in fact, would it not be less valuable in this that it would break no great line of the enemy's communications while mine would? Fifth, 
in case of disaster, would not a safe retreat be more difficult by your plan than mine? Lincoln proposed a deal. He told McClellan that if he could satisfactorily answer these five questions, then, quote, I shall gladly yield my plan to yours. McClellan sent the president a 22-page defense of his plan. Little Mac's argument was long yet forceful, promising, quote, the most brilliant results, end quote. McClellan argued throughout that his Urbana plan, combined with Union advances in the Western theater, would very, very likely spell the end of the rebellion. He said, quote, I will stake my life, my reputation on the result. More than that, I will stake upon it the success of our cause. However, I hope but little from the attack on Manassas. My judgment is against it. Lincoln remained skeptical. The president still believed the destruction of the enemy army, not the capture of the enemy capital, ought to be the primary objective of the campaign. But nevertheless, Lincoln once again deferred to McClellan's supposedly superior professional qualifications, and he tentatively approved the general's Urbana plan. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Mr. Lincoln's Army by Bruce Catton. And this, of course, is a classic. If you've never read Catton, then you're in for a treat, because they don't make them like this anymore. Anyway, Mr. Lincoln's Army discusses the early stages of the war, tracing the maturation of the Army of the Potomac when it was under the command of Little Mac. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations on the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. At the website, you can also find links to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed, which we hope you check out. When you're on Facebook, don't forget to like the podcast. You can also register through the website to be a member of the Strawfoot Brigade. Just yesterday, we released the first of two or three members episodes on Island Number 10, and next up will be the Fall of New Orleans. And we have some new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to welcome. Jason, Carol, David, Melissa, David, and Scott. Thanks, y'all. And then just a reminder that the lovely music you hear at the beginning of each episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I hope you'll join us again for the next show when we'll get McClellan's Peninsula campaign launched. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.